from West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for the legislature today is provided by Marshall University, with more than 100 degree programs offered in four locations and online. More about the Marshall family at marshall.edu. Welcome from the Capitol Building in Charleston. I'm Suzanne Higgins. It's E-Day at the legislature, a focus on the environment when advocates gather to lobby on behalf of environmental policy. We'll be joined by Delegate Evan Hansen of Monongalia County, an environmental scientist, to review several of those bills later in the program. But first, senior reporter Dave Mistich and reporter Emily Allen have updates on several items this evening. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Emily, let's start this morning in the House. There was a one of many criminal justice reform bills was up uh, on amendment stage. That's a committee substitute for House Bill 2419. Tell us about it. Yeah, so um, a, a central part of this focus on criminal justice reform is cr like crowding in our prisons and our regional jail facilities. And one uh, semi-shocking kind of bit of data they've been sharing is that almost half of them, um, the people that are overcrowding prisons and jails, have not been convicted of a crime yet. They're there waiting um, you know, for a hearing so this bill uh, would encourage um, magistrates or you know the, the judicial leaders that are looking over these cases to let people go if it's a you know a minor misdemeanor where they haven't posed a threat to anyone, so they wouldn't be waiting in jail or prison that whole time. Um, Releasing one, uh, releasing one on their own recognizance. Yes, recognizance mm -hmm. is a good way of putting it. Um, so the amendment today would have been to remove kind of an exception to that rule from the bill. I'm dealing with the Uniformed Controlled Substances Act, basically misdemeanor drug charges. Um, in a second, we're going to hear from Delegate Mike Pushkin, uh, you know, talking in favor of the amendment. But basically, uh, the, the kind of rationale from it was that this is a charge, it's a misdemeanor, you're mostly just a harm to yourself, you're not really a harm to others, and it's probably one of the most common charges that you see in this situation. So um, anyway, here's Delegate Mike Pushkin in the following clip speaking in favor of the amendment to this bill. So I think that the, the amendment actually makes the bill better. It seeks to uh, uh, further the intent of what we set out to do when we went into this, was to save the county's money and get nonviolent misdemeanors who are simply waiting for a trial. And when they get to that trial, they get time served and they're simply there because they don't have the money to bond out. It makes it a better bill. So I really was looking forward to working on bail bond reform this year. And this will actually help the bill attain that goal. So I support the amendment. And so, Emily, what happened to the amendment? What happened to the bill? The amendment did fail. Um, the bill, of course, has to go on to third reading, which will happen tomorrow. If it passes that, the bill will go on to the Senate or a Senate committee for the next approval. But yeah, the bill failed. Um, Delegate Schott, who chairs the Judiciary Committee and has been kind of at the head of much of this criminal justice reform, was one of the people against the amendment. We talked to him. Um, you know, him and others, they really just said it would create, you know, something that was too broad for them to control. He wanted a more conservative approach. Yep, so he was against the amendment, which failed. But the bill is moving onward. 
Thanks so much. Also in the House today, Delegate Marshall Wilson, we heard, made remarks. He's from Berkeley County. He made remarks today following yesterday's dismissal by a Kanawha County magistrate of misdemeanor battery charges against uh, Delegate Mike Caputo. And Dave, you did some reporting last night on that, and we'll come back for you to give us the backstory. But um, the dismissal was based on what's considered legislative immunity. And uh, here we have an excerpt of Delegate Wilson's remarks as he tries to get the Speaker of the House to voice his opinion on the extent of legislative immunity. Does the legislative immunity, I'm asking for a ruling from the chair, does the legislative immunity, which we are afforded while we are in session here, my understanding of it is that the point is to prevent any of us from being arrested and thereby allow us to continue representing the people we represent, to prevent anyone from being deprived of representation during the session. Does that legislative immunity extend beyond the, the parameters of the, of the uh, legislative session time-wise? And also, I need to ask, does it consider actions that took place during the session as being protected after the session ends? Sir, can you give a ruling from the chair on that? The chair cannot. The gentleman's raised what would be the, the equivalent of a legal question to which a court would have to opine rather than the chair. Obviously, uh, Delegate Wilson did not agree, agree with the dismissal of those charges yesterday. Dave, you reported on that. Give us the backstory. What's well, this Emily all about? Well, Emily and I sort of worked on that together yesterday. Of course, the legislature things sort of bounce and workflows mm -hmm. strange from time to time. But all this goes back to the incident last March with the anti-Muslim display, Delegate Caputo kicking in the door, uh, allegedly injuring a doorkeeper. Um, but, you know, as Emily and I, uh, you know, found out that um, you know, this magistrate ruled that, you know, as a lawmaker, he has legislative immunity and therefore the case has been dismissed. And, and we are asking now, what does legislative immunity mean? How far does it extend? I guess that's the question. That's the question. So. All right, Emily, the NRA was actually mentioned today on the House floor when it came to a school calendar bill. Real, real briefly, tell us about that. What an unlikely, you know, merging of two groups. So the National Rifle Association, the NRA, um, I guess I should start with uh, the legislature is trying to kind of set forth a firm calendar where school schedules can't start before Labor Day and can't end before Memorial Day, if I have my holidays correct. Um, the National Rifle Association after actually left some flyers on you know, the chairs of all these legislators, kind of urging them to pay attention to deer hunting season. Um, in this next clip, we're going to hear both sides of that argument from delegates uh, Espinosa and Delegate Thompson. I'm referring to on your desk, uh, you see a, a letter there from the NRA, their their Institute for Legislative Action. You'll see there uh, b b beneath the uh, picture, it says House Bill 2433 will impose a one-size-fits-all calendar on all public school systems in West Virginia. Currently, each school system may set its own calendar as long as they meet the 180-day requirement. Such a change may result in school systems eliminating the week off for the opening of deer season in order to still meet this requirement. I uh, am a proponent, you know, of the Second Amendment. I own guns. I come from a long family of hunters. My dad and my uncles and grandfather, I mean, we've been generational hunters. Uh, the, the NRA, though, does not need to be dictating educational policy. So um, while I, re I respect their concern, I urge adoption of this amendment. And so what happened? 
Yep, so there was an amendment that was brought up today just extending the school year to June 7th. That amendment passed um, and the bill is on to third reading. Okay, great, Emily. Dave, the governor had a press conference today. Tell us about that. That's right, he was up in Martinsburg and the subject was this idea of Vexit. That's the word that we're hearing about now. It would be the idea of counties from Virginia leaving to join West Virginia. We've heard about the resolutions from the Senate, uh, extend, uh, one in the House that would extend it past the proposal on just Frederick County. Uh, and we'll hear really quickly from the governor in this clip. We don't know all the intricacies that are going on, and we surely don't know, you know, whether or not that this could be, can run across the finish line. And we all know that, it's, that there's difficulties in making it run across the finish line. However, we all know this, that if there's people or there's businesses or there's counties that are discontent we want the world to know just how welcoming West Virginia is. And so that's our role. That's my role. And Suzanne, um, of course, he was joined by Jerry Falwell Jr. That's the son of the televangelist, the famous televangelist Jerry Falwell Sr. Um, and uh, Falwell Jr. Uh, basically argued that Virginia being a, having a Democrat governor in Ralph Northam and the Democratic-controlled legislature, uh, all these proposals to, to reel back gun rights, to, to, to put some gun control, uh, he referred to what's happening there as barbaric. And here's a clip from Jerry Falwell Jr. about arguing for Virginia counties to join West Virginia. While, while there will likely be a robust debate about how cities and counties could leave their home state of Virginia, one thing is absolutely certain. Many counties are taking a long, hard look at escaping the barbaric, totalitarian, and corrupt democratic regime in Richmond that is trampling on individual rights throughout the state. And so where does it go from here? That's right. So the, it just this, continuing. Yeah, yeah. This so issue. so basically, the, the idea is that you know Frederick County, Virginia, said they don't want to join West Virginia, but if there were counties that wanted to, the Virginia General Assembly would have to approve them leaving. And then there's 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 some questions over whether or not Congress would have to approve this, just the same way that West Virginia seceded from Virginia in 1863. So. All right, Dave Mistich, Emily Allen, thank you both. Thank you. A sizable gathering here for E Day at the legislature. Randy Yowie reports. On this 2020 E-Day at the Capitol, legislative concerns include bills and acts that promote solar energy, provide clean drinking water, and protect our lands from contamination. The thought process here, it's not environment versus economy, but environment and economy. Karen Ireland is with the West Virginia Environmental Council. Um, and I think that this there's a, a false narrative that's been set up that you can't have jobs and um, a clean, healthy environment. And I think that that's absolutely um, false. Several groups displayed information at the Capitol today on their work in protecting the environment, including the West Virginia Department of Environmental Protection. Terry Fletcher of the DEP says the agency is committed to clean air, water, land, and economic development. Really, our entire mission is to make sure that, that these companies that come in or um, that, that exist here already uh, are, are abiding by all the, the rules and regulations that, that are set forth um, to ensure that you know, we're keeping our water clean, our air clean, um, you know, and our ground safe. One of the major players of the West Virginia Environmental Council E-Day event was Tracy Dancy. Growing up in Parkersburg as a competitive swimmer, Tracy, like thousands of others, fell victim to drinking, swimming, and living with water contaminated with the DuPont chemical C8. Choosing life-saving amputation to survive cancer, the nurse turned community environmental advocate says she's all about West Virginia economic development, 
with the simple approach of protecting people first. Science is saying you got, you got to do that because in the end, economically, it's going to cost you so much more in terms of public health and, and um, quality of life. The mindset here that clean air, water, and land is not a privilege, but a human right. For the legislature today, I'm Randy Yohe. Joining me now, Delegate Evan Hansen of Monongalia County, Minority Vice Chair of Natural Resources. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. You're also a member of the Energy Committee, the Government Organization Committee, and the Technology and Infrastructure Committee. Um, and, and Delegate Hansen, we just thought it was really appropriate to have you here on E-Day um, because uh, of all the um, environmentally uh, related legislation that you have pursued over the years and and also you know there are times when you are the lone uh, delegate who stands up to speak to some of these major pieces of legislation that, that, that comes through that might be you know lessening water quality standards or might be or, or might have the intention of you know expediting economic development and you're often the, the lone person that stands up and says, you know, let's think about this. Let's go a little more slowly. Let's think about the, the environmental impact and the impact on, on our health. Um, so do, do you feel sometimes like you're a lone wolf out there? I don't know if I feel like I'm a lone wolf. I, I appreciate that people look to me for advice on these issues because this is related to a lot of the work that I do in my day job outside of the legislature. So these are things I've looked at over time and I have some, some science or some information I could bring to the discussion to help, help us reach a better decision, I hope. Um, we want to mention here, again, you're an environmental scientist. You have degrees from MIT and the University of California, Berkeley. Um, you, you've, you've studied this. Um, let's just take it more global uh, um, perspective of yours. Let, let's find out, you know, in, in, a, in a time when we are hearing from scientists around the world about, uh, about climate change and um, they are citing these various events that we see here, extreme weather patterns and, and other events, um, as a clarion call. What are your thoughts about looking at the future and where we are right now in terms of um, decisions we make about, uh, about our planet. I think everybody needs to act in some way. I think countries need to act, our federal government, government needs to act, and our state and local governments need to take steps that make sense. And it's a challenge in West Virginia because the economy has been tied for decades to um, fossil fuel extraction and burning. And the, the science of it is when you burn fossil fuels, you, you emit greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. And so we play a role in that. Um, but that means that we also need to be part of the solution. And the challenge is to find policies that work in West Virginia that recognize the past and that recognizes the role that fossil fuels will continue to play in the future but at the same time sets us up to take advantage of some of the new types of jobs that are being created across the country that are passing us by so that we can have some sort of a, a transition. 
and, and new jobs and good paying jobs for people that may be losing their jobs. And, and there are um, some legislation, some bills before us right now that really do try to address that. I just do want to um, uh, mention that we had the Speaker of the House on this program uh, earlier this month. And while he, it, um, while he would say that he does recognize climate change, he was not willing to, to say that it is a foregone conclusion that the science is, is um, you know, ex exact or if the science is definitive about man-enhanced climate change. When I asked him if we West Virginians have that responsibility to, to impact our, our carbon footprint, he pointed to renewables. Um, uh, and, and so can you see that there, there is a, um, a, some kind of moving of that pendulum to realizing that um, other sources of, of energy must be pursued. I think there is, and we may disagree about whether humans cause climate change, because I believe the science is clear on that. Um, but we agree that there are lots of jobs in renewables that are not coming to West Virginia. Um, solar installer is the fastest growing sector of jobs in the country right now. But why don't you go ahead and, 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 I'm sorry, why don't you go ahead and tell us about your Modern Jobs Act, which really does focus right on what we're talking about. The Modern Jobs Act, we're also calling it the Mojo Act, that, that allows large electricity consumers to build solar arrays or purchase solar so long as those array, arrays are placed on former coal mines in West Virginia. So it's a way to promote solar jobs. Um, but more importantly than the solar installation jobs, the jobs that we can protect in West Virginia and bring to West Virginia, because so many companies have renewable electricity targets that they must meet, and they can't access enough renewable electricity in West Virginia. We, we hear about it all the time. Um, you know, the companies, Amazon, Microsoft, they all are, are, are looking for areas that have that, um, have that as part of their energy plan, have uh, states that offer that as part of their energy sources. That's right, and, and there's very limited avenues for renewable development in West, West Virginia right now. It's just the way the rules are written. Um, so, so tell me, what do you want us to know about the, the Mojo Act, as, as you put it, um, because we want to cover a lot of things in, in the next few minutes. Well, I would like to talk about the, the bipartisan compromise solar bill. That, that was came just out today. introduced today. Terrific. Go uh, ahead. Because that one is actually moving, and that's, that's a bill that will, will meet the same goals that I had with the Mojo Act. It would dramatically increase the access to solar in West Virginia, especially for corporations that need it. Um, it's a little bit different, but that's okay because we reached a bipartisan agreement and it's a compromise. And I think people want their legislators in Charleston to actually compromise and get things done. So this is a bill that's co-sponsored, not just by me, but by the Speaker of the House and by the Chair and the Vice Chair of the Energy Committee. And in, in fact, it has more Republican co-sponsors than Democratic co-sponsors. And, and what is the incentive? What's the important thing to, to remember about that? that particular bill, that's that, 4562. That authorizes each of the two major utilities in West Virginia to build 
200 megawatts of solar. So that would authorize 400 megawatts of solar. And just for comparison, we have about 10 megawatts in the entire state now. So that would increase the amount of solar by 40 times. That's terrific. Also, an, another bipartisan bill introduced today, this, that's House Bill 4574. Now, it, it, it's called establishing the, the just transition support for coal-related jobs. That's another one that's important to you that you co-sponsor. It is, and one of the big issues that we're debating all the time is the jobs that are being lost in the coal industry and at power plants. You know, we, there was just a, a severance tax right. reduction last session related to coal jobs, and there was a, a bailout of the Pleasance Power Station. So this, this bill creates a new small office within the state government called the Just Transition Office. And one of the things that it does with an advisory committee is write a plan, a just transition plan for these counties that have lost so many jobs. And it's gonna be a plan that figures out how to funnel state and federal and local resources and programs into these communities. And it's gonna be a plan that is developed by people in these communities. So That's so significant because we, we hear over and over we're, that this community has this grant this community has that grant. So you're, you're saying this would establish a, a um, statewide coordination to, to assist. It would, and I think there's, there's potentially a lot of federal dollars that could come into these coal communities because there, there's a feeling of obligation that if the energy system across the country is gonna change in the way that it has been changing, that there's an obligation to take care of the people who who are bearing the brunt of the pain, or at least try to make a transition easier. And again, that's a bipartisan effort. Okay. Tell us about the Clean Water, the Clean Drinking Water Act of 2020. That was introduced last week. This is a bill that is related to the types of chemicals that were discharged from the DuPont facility in Wood County. Um, it became famous with the movie Dark Waters. They were producing a chemical called C8 related to Teflon production. But what's happened over the last decades is that there's been dozens of new chemicals that have been developed by the chemical industry, but they haven't gone through enough testing to determine whether or not they're toxic. And what happened because of that is that we don't have um, drinking water thresholds or, or um, surface water thresholds for those chemicals. But we know that many of them are toxic. And so what this bill does is it creates, it creates the process so that we collect enough data and information across the state of West Virginia to identify where this is a problem and to assemble the best science we can so we could set those thresholds to keep people's drinking water safe. Do you think you have bipartisan support for that? That bill only has Democratic co-sponsors, but we're at the beginning of the process. Now, here, uh, uh, House, Joint Resolution 25. Now that would be a heavy lift. This is an environmental rights amendment to the West Virginia State Constitution. Tell us briefly about that. That's right. This, this is an amendment to the, to the Bill of Rights in the West Virginia State Constitution, and it's modeled after similar amendments that are in the Bill of Rights in Pennsylvania and in Montana. And essentially what it does is it clarifies that people have the right to clean air, pure water, and a healthy environment. It doesn't allow for a cause of action or lawsuits against private businesses, but what it does do is it holds the 
government accountable so that if they go too far in one direction in terms of um, laws or permits or something like that that don't and they don't take into account people's inalienable rights to clean water and air then the courts could step in and your sense as to whether this gains traction it would need what a majority it would need it would need two-thirds of a vote it would need two-thirds yeah. so like you said this one's and a heavy then it lift. goes on the ballot then it goes on the ballot yeah um, so but it's in the hopper and <laughs> we'll be talking you'll about keep it. going um real briefly let, let's uh let's focus on enforcement for just just a moment i know you've uh, spoken to that um, before. You believe the DEP um, is down in manpower for simply the regulations that we have on the books. I think they are. They're down in manpower in many ways, mm -hmm. including enforcement. And enforcement's really important because in order for the environmental laws to work effectively, they need to be enforced. It, you need to pay a penalty if you violate the law and the penalty needs to deter you from doing it in the future. But the, the laws need to be enforced fairly across all the permittees so that the DEP doesn't pay, play favorites and they can only do it fairly if they have enough staff. We only have a moment left, uh, Delegate Hansen. So, you know, any final thoughts as we're one third of the way through the session in terms of our environmental focus? I would just say that I'm encouraged that there's a couple of proactive environmental bills that are bipartisan, and I think um, that we can do more of that because there are people on both sides of the aisle that want to see a clean environment and, uh, and a growing economy. That's terrific. Delegate Evan Hansen of Montegalia County, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you. And as we wrap up here tonight, a reminder that our energy and, and excuse me, our energy and environment reporter, Brittany Patterson, wants to hear your questions concerning energy policy in West Virginia. Let her know at wvpublic.org. Perhaps your question will be the topic of a story she pursues this session. I'm Suzanne Higgins. For everyone here at West Virginia Public Broadcasting, thanks for joining us. Have a great evening.